Good morning. Our reading is from Numbers, from chapter 22. If anybody needs a church Bible, I'm guessing there are some out there. But no one needs one. Everyone's equipped. So we're in Numbers 22, and we're going to read verses 1 to 6, and then we're going to jump to 21 to 35. Then the Israelites travelled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Baor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates River, in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. Going on to verse 21. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the Moabite officials. But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, it turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and he was angry and beat it with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you, because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared it. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you're displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. years of reading children's stories, it takes great discipline not to do a voice for a donkey. (laughs) Uh, Well, good morning. Um, We have a very strange relationship in modern Western society with being humble. If you were to go out into the street right now 
and ask the next 100 people to walk past you whether it's a good thing to be humble, I think probably 90, 90 plus would say yes. Being humble is considered a virtue. But if you were to go out into society and look for examples of people being humble, well, that's a bit harder to find. This is the fifth time I've used the word humble. Uh, and I'm willing to bet that every time I've done it so far, a good number of the people who can hear my voice are adding the word brag. For those of you who aren't familiar, a humble brag is a thing now. This is a boast, but it pretends to be humble. They're very, very common things, particularly on social media. They come in different flavors, uh, depending on which social medium you're talking about. On LinkedIn, uh, the one I'm unfortunately on most often, the least subtle of the social media platforms, in my opinion, they most often just go route one. And they say, I'm humbled to announce that I've just been featured in this list of people who are really good at stuff. The most subtle humble brags, I think, are on Twitter. Um, you get threads of advice. Hey, young people who are thinking about doing this thing that I do, here's a thread of top tips so that you can do it really well and be a huge success, brackets, like me. On social media platforms that are a bit more social, it's more often a picture of someone else. And we say a caption like, couldn't do it without this one. And then, of course, somebody takes the bait and says, well, what couldn't you do? And you say, well, as you ask, I've just set a new Olympic record in the 400-meter hurdles, or I've sold Netflix a six-episode series of my adaptation of Don Quixote. In all of these cases, the point is the brag, right? That's what you're after. You want to show off, but you don't want to look like you're showing off. You don't want somebody to think you're boasting. So that's why we invented the humble brag. We can show off like we really want to, but we add this thin smear of humility over the top so that we can feel like we're not boasting. That's the strange relationship that we've got in humility, uh, with humility, I should say, in society in general right now. We put on an act of being humble, but only so that we can do exactly the opposite. We can pretend to be humble in order that we can brag. And maybe that's not surprising. Maybe that's not surprising in a society that tells us that we and we alone are in control of our lives. That's the message we're getting from everywhere, right? So if humility is all about acknowledging that somebody else is more important, if humility is acknowledging that some part of our lives should not be entirely directed by what we like right now, well, maybe that's why we struggle with humility. In our passage this morning, we can see three lessons about humility when it comes to our relationship with God. In particular, humility when it comes to God's plan and God's plan for our lives. The lessons the Bible teaches are very different to the lessons we learn about humility on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter. Pause for shocked gasp, it says here, but no, okay, I'll carry on. So first, some context. Um, last week uh, in the sermon, we saw Israel camping in the wilderness, and they were grumbling. You might have come away from that passage with the impression that things weren't going very well for them, what with all the venomous snakes and the grumbling and all of those sorts of things. But actually, things were going pretty well. They were on the upswing. God had rescued Israel from Egypt. He was bringing them into the promised land. 
This was God's stated goal. This was the plan that he'd announced to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and it was working. They were meeting their milestones. They were going along this plan. And along the way, God was showing the immense power that he has when he puts his plan into action. Anybody who got in the way was being swept aside by Israel's army. If you were to go and look at the part of Numbers immediately prior uh, to the episode with the snakes, there was a Canaanite king in the Negev who had tried to stop them. What happened? His army and his cities were utterly destroyed, and Israel moved on. In the part of Numbers in between the episode with the snakes and this episode this week, um, the Israelites had run-ins with Sihon, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. Sihon refused Israel permission to pass through his land, and he sent his army out to, to stop them, to bar their way. Og didn't even bother with that. He just looked for the scrap. He sent his army straight away. Both times, both times, God's plan was not stopped. God gave Israel the victory. The armies of Sihon, the Amorites, and the armies of Og were completely destroyed. If you read through Numbers, this happens over and over and over again. Some nation, some king, decides to stand in the way of Israel, and their army is defeated. It's actually almost surreal when you read it through how routine this becomes. Quite often, the opposition, the, the war, and the destruction of the army are all dealt with in a, a couple of lines. It's that routine. So when our passage opens, we shouldn't be surprised to see that Balak and the elders uh, of Moab were concerned. The Israelites, verse 1, are camping in, in their territory. And Balak knew, verse 2, what they'd done to the Amorite army. That was the one that, that Sihon had sent against them. Balak knew that these Israelites weren't just another wandering tribe. They were winning great victories. And they all knew that this was about to become a problem for them. Look at verse 4. The Israelites will lick up everything around them as the ox licks up the grass of the field. That's the strength that God has given Israel so that they can fulfill his plan. They're not just going to win. They're going to do it as casually as an ox, strolling around the field, having his lunch, just grazing. That's how straightforward this is going to be. That's how powerful God's plan is. Balak has seen what happens when an army tries to stand against Israel. He knows that he's going to be swept aside like the Amorites were. God's will is so great that this battle is just casual. The other main character in this passage is Balaam. Balaam is a prophet uh, and a prophet with a big reputation. Outside of the Bible, there are other historical sources from hundreds of years after his life that talk about him, talk about his reputation, talk about his, prophet, uh, his career as a prophet in the region. So this is why in verse 6, uh, Balak says to Balaam, I know that whom you bless is blessed. I know that whom you curse is cursed. That's the reputation. That's how successful Balaam has been. That's the word on the street. Balaam's prophecies come true. But Balaam's a little bit different to the other prophets that we're probably all thinking of right now. When we think of prophets in the Old Testament, we tend to think of God's prophets, naturally. 
they pass on God's message and they pass it on faithfully. Very often that comes at personal expense to them. God calls them to go and tell Israel or or tell the king of Israel that they're doing something wrong. And they make themselves pretty unpopular. Balaam's not like that. Balaam's a businessman. If you need a blessing, if you need a curse, you pay Balaam and he does it for you. He produces a blessing or a curse to order. He's more a magician or a mystic, one of those words that, that we also see used in the Bible. That's the kind of word that we would use. I think of him as a prophet for profit. Thank you. So when, uh, when Balak found himself uh, with Israel camped in his territory, when he saw what they'd done to other armies, and when he understood how easily the army of Israel was going to swat him aside, he knew that he had a problem he couldn't solve by force. And in this part of the world, at this time, if you had a problem, if no one else could help, and if you could find him, maybe you could hire Balaam. So Balak sends for Balaam to come and whip up a curse. Now, you'll notice our passage this morning sort of cuts off before he gets there. It doesn't show us how Balak and Balaam uh, actually pan out. We'll see that next week, um, and I'm not going to spoil it too much, but it's important for this week that you know. Ultimately, this fails. Ultimately, Balak and Balaam cannot stand. The army of Israel will destroy the army of Midian because God's plan can't be stopped. You have to know that for this to work. No person, no matter how important, no matter how powerful, is able to stop God's plan. Balak's just the latest in a, in a long line of rulers, starting with Pharaoh, who didn't want Israel to leave Egypt in the first place. He's the latest in a long line of people who try and stand against God's plan to bring Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. Balak is the latest to stand in opposition to God. And ultimately, what he's going to find out is that doesn't work. It doesn't matter how mighty he is. It doesn't matter how important he is. It doesn't matter what help he brings in. He cannot stand against God. We see that illustrated more clearly in the second half of the passage with the the famous story of Balaam and his donkey uh, on his way to answer Balak's call. I used to live in East London. There's a road there called Balaam Street. Uh, This is is true. Um, As you walk down it, it turns sharply to the left. It turns sharply to the right. And then it turns one more time. It's fascinating. Whoever was able to get that one past the city planners has my uh, utmost respect. So we join Balaam, uh, this mighty prophet, this gun for hire, who kings turn to for help. And he's on his way to, to go and do a job. But verse 22 God was very angry with him. This was a job God didn't want Balaam to do. And and by the way, Balaam knows this. This isn't a surprise. We skipped over verses 7 to 20 in our reading because it was already quite a long passage, but let me sum it up for you. Messengers from Balak show up at Balaam's house with cash, uh, and Balaam prays about whether he should go with them. And God gives him an absolutely direct answer. No, don't go. Don't curse that people. So Balaam tells the messengers that God won't let him take the job. Balak sends more people back to Balaam, and and these ones are more important, and they offer more money. And instead of sticking to the answer that God's given him, 
Balaam goes back to God. Balaam asks again, because Balaam wants the job. He'd had an absolutely clear answer to his question. The answer was no. It wasn't hold out for more money. It was no. And yet, Balaam wasn't humble before God. Balaam didn't acknowledge God's rule. Balaam wanted the job more than he wanted to do what God had said. So in verse 22, when the Bible tells us that God was angry with Balaam, it's not a surprise. Balaam knew what God's position was, and he took the offer. He put his own priorities above God's. And as we see, God puts Balaam back in his place. He puts his angel in Balaam's way, verse 23, and that causes the donkey to swerve off the road. They get back on the road, and the angel appears somewhere else. And so in verse 25, the donkey squishes Balaam's foot against the wall. And then they get going again. God moves the angel again. And verse 27, the donkey just sits down, refuses to go on. Each time, you can see Balaam getting more and more wound up, right? He's, he's hitting the donkey. And, and by the end, in verse 27, he gets off completely and he's just wailing on this thing with his staff. That's an image that, that maybe we struggle with, actually. We're more concerned now for, for animal welfare, I think, than the majority of people hearing this story would have been. For most of those people, a donkey was equipment. It was more like a car than it was like a living being. So for most of the people hearing this, this would have come off as just plain ridiculous. The famous Balaam, the guy that kings pay fortunes to, reduced to flailing away at a donkey, cursing him. It's like watching a high-powered executive go bananas on a printer because he can't make it work properly. The image that springs to mind for me, I'm a bit older, is, is Basil Fawlty with a tree branch laying into his car. It's almost exactly that, and I think we're meant to find it funny. I think we're meant to understand that Balaam's lack of humility has cost him his dignity here. And then it gets worse, doesn't it? In verse 31, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and the angel speaks to him and Balaam understands, well, the donkey got this right. The great prophet Balaam couldn't see the angel of the Lord. If Balaam had had the way that he wanted, verse 33, the angel would have struck him dead. But the donkey saw... So the man who can order up blessings and curses at will, or so his reputation would have you believe, doesn't have the spiritual insight in this situation of a beast of burden. Balak and Balaam were two powerful men in their own world. They were a king and a prophet. They had every earthly reason to trust in their own strength, every earthly reason not to be humble before God. But we see pretty clearly, I think, no one is mighty enough that God can't put them back in their place. Nobody is big enough that they can defy God's plan. At the same time, we see that there's nobody who's too small to be part of that plan too. We've seen in other parts of the Bible, it's, it's not uncommon to find yourself in a situation where one person can see the spiritual truth of something and one person can't. I stood up here not so long ago and I talked to you about Elijah and the chariots of fire. 
They were surrounded by an army, Elijah and his servant. If you remember, Elijah was perfectly calm and his servant was terrified. Why? Because Elijah could see the spiritual truth. Elijah could see the army of the Lord ready to protect them. And his servant couldn't. Then Elijah prayed. God opened his servant's eyes and the servant could see the same thing. He could see the spiritual truth. And in that story, I think it it lines up with what we'd expect. Here's Elijah, the man of God. He's used by God greatly. Of course, he can see the truth. And of course, his servant can't. But a story like this, I think, is a bit more of a challenge for us. The roles are reversed, right? Right from the start of, of the second part of our passage, verse 23, the donkey can see the spiritual truth of the situation. Let that sink in. The donkey can see the angel of the Lord. And Balaam has no idea. And at the end of the passage, once the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey, once the donkey tells Balaam, I'm not just doing this for no reason, I'm not just having a laugh, then Balaam sees the truth of the situation. And it's not a special donkey. It's not a donkey descended from a a great line of seers. It doesn't have any particular spiritual insight. And God does speak directly to Balaam. It was in the the part of the passage that we didn't have read out, but that does happen. Balaam is allowed spiritual insight at certain times. But in this particular moment, in this particular time, God's plan is for the donkey to see his plan and not Balaam. It's a perfect example of of what Paul refers to in Corinthians when he says that God's chosen the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise. God's given this donkey the ability to see the angel. He's given it the ability to speak so that it can prompt Balaam to see the spiritual truth so that Balaam can understand. Well, the donkey knew better than me. The donkey saw the spiritual truth. Verse 34, as a result, we see what looks like repentance uh, from Balaam. He's been put firmly back in his place. God's demonstrated to him that he needs to be humble to God's will. And the use of the donkey is is a key part of that, to deliver that message. Has that message got through or not? Well, the story will continue here next week. Uh, Same Balaam time, same Balaam channel. And you can find out. Um, But for now, let's think how to apply some of that to our own lives. I think the first thing we have to say is how incredibly reassuring... We should find this. God is in control. God is in total control. There's nothing too big, no person, no event too big to be a part of God's plan. We see him here dealing with the sweep of history and the fate of nations. We see him dealing with kings and prophets, and it's all still true. No king, no prophet, no oligarch, no president, no movie star, no footballer, no influencer, can stop God. Nobody is too big for God's plan. Also, nobody's too small. Nobody is too humble to be used by him. The path walked by a donkey is as much a part of God's plan as a global pandemic and the fate of nations and a war. Every one of us here this morning is part of that plan. Every one of us. We are accounted for in what God is doing. Every good thing that happens to us, and every bad thing too. Every massive, life-changing event, and every small, everyday occurrence. 
every single thing is accounted for in God's plan. What an amazing thing to be able to say. And, and by the way, when I say every one of us here this morning, I'm not saying if we're a Christian, no. Balak's not one of God's people. In fact, he was openly opposed to God's people. God speaks directly to Balaam, but Balaam's not one of God's people either. So maybe you're not sure yet where you stand on these things. Maybe you are sure, and maybe you're sure that God doesn't exist. Well, I'm saying the same thing to you as I'm saying to the pastor. God's in control of your life. And ultimately, God's control and, and God's plan, and this I am saying to, just to the Christians, is for the good of the people who love him. That's the outcome of everything that goes on with Balak and Balaam. They're trying to stop God's plan to bring Israel into the promised land. They're trying to stop God's plan to bring his people to himself. And God acts to make sure that they can't. Just like he did then, God's acting today to bring his people to himself. What an amazing thing to be able to say. God is acting right now in all things big and small, for our benefit, for my benefit, for your benefit. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it does mean it will end up happily. It does mean it will end in the right place. God's plan is to bring us home. It's to bring me home. It's to bring you home. And God's plan can't be stopped. That, I think, is, is the greatest message from here. But I think we can also learn from this how we can respond. And I think what I'd encourage you to learn is, is that we need the right amount of humility. We can't be so unhumble that we think we're too big for God's plan, but we can't be so humble that we think we're too small. None of us, so far as I'm aware, is the ruler of Moab. None of us is a prophet who can produce curses and blessings to order. But we can still fall into the trap of thinking that we're too big for God's plan. We can still get a bit pleased with our own achievements, whether that's a career or a hobby or even our family and friends. And then we can start to think that our priorities are more important than God's priorities. Well, that's not humble enough. We need to be more humble than that. We need to acknowledge that God's plan for our lives is the most important thing. And it's not enough just to say it. It's not enough to humble brag about it. If you go through the passage actually and read just the words that Balaam says without looking at the rest of it, he actually says all the right things. He looks like he's humble. But when you look at his actions, you see somebody who is not accepting that God's plan is sovereign in his life. He's going off and doing what he wants to do. He's just saying the humble thing. Or perhaps we're at the other end of the scale. Perhaps we think we're too humble. Perhaps we think we're too small, too unimpressive, too unworthy. And God's plan doesn't have a role for us to play. Perhaps we think that God couldn't possibly use someone like us. So my message is, is to be slightly less humble than that. God might use others we know in more obvious ways than the ways in which he uses us. That's okay, that's fine. We're all different parts of the body. He's given each of us different gifts, and he'll use each one of those gifts differently. What he wants us to do might not be impressive, 
by human standards, that's fine. Absolutely fine. Play your part. Be proud of what you're doing in God's plan. Because he uses the humble things of this world. And he'll use us too. I was looking for a way to, to sum this up in a nutshell, and, and, and one came to me. There's an American pastor uh, who is all over the internet. And before he preaches, his congregation is standing, and he asks them to get their Bible in their hand, mostly phones now, but some of us still have books. And he has a, a, a thing that they all recite, a form of words that they all recite, and it begins, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. Now, there's lots that I don't like about that pastor's output, but that statement on its own is incredibly inspiring. That is the exact right amount of humility before God. That's the humility that I pray we would each have. Because if God is at work in every aspect of my life, if God is working out his plan in my life, and if that is truly the most important thing in my life, then... The Bible, where he tells me what his plan is, tells me who I am. If I'm truly humble, then I am what the Bible says I am. I'm not so big and impressive, and I'm not so small and unworthy, that I'm an exception. Nobody is. So every time we approach the Bible, whether it's in church, in home group, on YouTube, on a podcast, with our study notes, however it is. Let's try and bring that attitude towards it. Here I am, Lord, humble. I want to be what you want me to be. Let me look in your word. Let me find out what I am. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you have made clear your plan for our church, for our lives. We thank you for all the work that you've done throughout history. We thank you that we can see that sweep. And Father, we pray for the confidence to approach your word, to find out who we are. We pray that you would do that work in our hearts, Lord, that you'd hold up a mirror to our lives and that when we walk away from that mirror, we'd remember what we look like. And we'd act accordingly. In the name of your son. Amen. Amen.